0: Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us together again this morning to speak to us. We know that your word does not return void and that it accomplishes all that you set out for it to accomplish. We pray that we would be moldable and malleable in your hands. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to believe and minds to understand and hands and feet that are eager and willing to do your will as part of the new creation, as those who are united to Jesus Christ by faith alone. We ask all these things in his name. Amen. Well, please be seated and turn, if you will, in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Today, of course, is Reformation Day, and the Reformation is aptly named. It was trying to reform things. It wasn't a revolution. There were things that were going on in the life of the church that had gotten corrupted, but they weren't trying to invent or create anything new. The gospel had gotten clouded or shaded or distorted in one way or another that wasn't really anything new either Paul in both Philippians and Galatians is recognizing that even after he had planted churches that Satan had crept in and already people were trying to distort the gospel so the reformation one of the purposes of the reformation was really to reform the doctrine of the church to be based on scripture alone and what God's word says and not to add anything to it in any way or to distort it And one of the other big aspects had to do with worship, which is something that we'll look at, Lord willing, in the evening service. But this morning, there's so many rich texts we could pick up to do a Reformation sermon. I thought we'd pick this one from Philippians 3. If you were to ask people, how are you right with God? You might get a variety of different answers. Some people might say, we just need to do our best. Others might say, God helps those who help themselves. Others would certainly say there is no God. There's no need to worry about that. Others would say that all roads lead to God in one way or another. All different kinds of answers regarding how are you right with God. But one of the things at the very heartbeat of the Reformation was to get this doctrine right, to get the gospel right, and to get it out. The five solas kind of summarize what we believe about how one is right with God. That we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, and according to the word of God alone. It's really highlighting these. Other churches, of course, believe in grace and faith in Christ. It's the alone part that the Reformation was reforming to say we believe that we are saved by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone For the glory of God alone, none of our boasting about anything and according to the word of God alone. And so this morning, I thought I'd title the sermon, A Tale of Two Righteousnesses, which I know righteousness is, is not a word, but riffing off of A Tale of Two Cities, if you will, from Dickens, that there are two different kinds of righteousnesses. One that is not really a righteousness at all that leads to death and one that leads to life. One is that which is based on ourself or on our works or on our contribution or on the law. And that is deadly. And the other one is based on grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that is life-giving and eternal life-giving. And so we want to look at these two different righteousnesses the one that we try to earn or merit or do on our own, and the one that's a gift from God the Father in the Son through the Holy Spirit to those who are his. It's always God to us in terms of salvation. If you ask most people, there's a way that we try to climb a ladder to get to God, to make ourselves right with God by doing something or contributing something. And the reality of the scripture and the reality of our situation, of our lostness and deadness and sin in Adam, the gospel comes and tells us it's God to us, always. God comes to us, not just to make salvation possible, but to save and to rescue, to redeem, to renew, to love, to care for, to take us all the way home to glory. God to us, over and over and over. This is the theme of scripture. We could say the theme of scripture is really that salvation belongs to the Lord. And we just sang in Psalm 69, salvation to his people, God will give. Not one of his will be lost, right? So this morning, let's look at a tale of two righteousnesses. As we hear this passage from Philippians 3. First, we're going to look at Paul's warning as a pastor. And then Paul's resume as a Pharisee. And then Paul's accounting as a Christian. Paul's warning as a pastor. Paul's resume as a Pharisee. And Paul's accounting as a Christian. Let's hear now the word of God, Philippians 3. We'll look at the first 11 verses. This is the word of God. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. So far, the reading of God's holy word. Well, first we have here Paul is writing to the Philippians, warning them as a pastor. He's caring for them. The gospel is under attack. This is really what he's talking about here. And he wants to warn them to not desert the gospel that he has delivered for some other gospel. There was really a group at the time that were called Judaizers. And they taught that the Gentiles must first become Jews and then obey all of the Old Testament laws, the ceremonial laws, in order to gain and or maintain salvation. And Paul found this abhorrent. He had come to them, he had actually planted this church and preached to them the gospel of salvation through Christ alone, and now people are coming in and adding other things to it. And this won't do. Paul is an apostle called by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Paul won't tolerate a different gospel. Earlier in this letter, even Paul says he could rejoice if the gospel were preached from wrong motives, but he can't possibly rejoice if the wrong gospel is preached or a false gospel is preached. In other words, he's saying, look, if someone's even doing this from wrong motives, I rejoice if the right message is getting out there. That there is salvation in no other name under than Christ, Jesus Christ, and it's by faith alone in him and not by works. He rejoices, even if it's done from wrong motives. But if that message itself is distorted, then Paul's rancor is up. <laughs> He's going to say something about it. He is going to defend the truth. He is going to defend the gospel. He is going to defend the flock from a false gospel. So he says, look out. He gives three bewares. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evildoers. Beware of those who mutilate the flesh. So what does he mean by these phrases? What is Paul saying here? He says, look out for the dogs, right? These aren't the lovable, huggable pets that we're thinking about here. But it was really meant as a term of derision in the day. When you called someone a dog, they were unworthy to receive anything holy. Dogs were considered ritually unclean. They ate everything, including other dead animals, human corpses. They ate their own vomit. They were considered outside of the covenant. So really what Paul is warning against here is those who think that they're inside the covenant, but they're actually outside because they're preaching a false gospel. They're the ones who are unclean. They're the ones who are dogs. Stay away from them. Beware of them. And he also says, watch out for the evildoers. It's ironic again. It's those who held on to their keeping of the law and good works who think they're righteous that he's calling evildoers. evildoers. The ones who are self-righteous. The ones who think all these things I have done since my youth, like the rich young ruler, he's saying he's an evildoer. Keep away from them. It's the one who's pointing you to the reality of your sin and pointing you to the reality of your Savior, Jesus Christ, and in Him alone, who is the one who's telling you the true gospel. So avoid the dogs, avoid the evil doers. Their emphasis on the works of the law turns it uh, into self-reliance, and it obscures the need for Jesus Christ. They begin to trust in themselves either for salvation or that they're cooperating with or co-meriting salvation in some way. And Paul's saying, have nothing to do with it. Beware of him. He's a pastor. And this false gospel is prevalent today, isn't it? I'm warning you as a pastor. Don't listen to it. Run away from it. Flee from those kind of things. He says also, beware of those who mutilate the flesh. This is really quite a brilliant play on words by Paul. So these Judaizers were Jews, and they took a lot of pride in their circumcision, which was a badge, really, of honor in their consideration of their in-the-covenant people, the circumcision. And Paul's saying, what you're counting as circumcision, I'm saying is mutilating the flesh, which was forbidden in the law, to cut yourself and to do those kind of things. You remember the story of the prophets of Baal, how um, the prophets of Baal were cutting themselves, trying to show their sorrow or their worthiness or something to appease the gods. They said, no, don't do that. The, the law of God said, don't do that. So he's saying the thing that you're counting on in your circumcision is actually idolatrous because you're counting on it in order for this act of getting circumcised or that right of circumcision in and of itself saves you. It doesn't. It's the Lord who saves. It's Yahweh who saves in and through Jesus Christ, whom Paul had preached to them. So he's saying, watch out, beware. Although their national identities and sacred ceremonies are not viewed as bad in and of themselves, they are to be rejected as the foundation for one's relationship with God or heirs of salvation. In other words, to summarize this first point, it's quite simply that Jesus plus or minus anything is a false religion. If you add anything to it, Jesus plus works. Jesus plus my cooperation. Jesus plus my efforts. Jesus plus whatever, fill in the blank, is a false religion. Or if you take anything away, he's insufficient in any way. That's a false religion. That's a false gospel. Paul is saying beware of anyone who says anything other than what we would summarize is that you're saved by grace alone. Through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, according to the word of God alone. And Paul says, look, if anybody really has the ability to boast in their flesh or the achievements, I do. This is our second point. Paul's resume is a Pharisee. The first point really had to do with his warning as a pastor, right? Avoid the false gospel. Jesus Christ, plus or minus anything, is a false religion. But now he gives his resume. If anyone should have confidence in the flesh, I all the more. You've heard the phrase before, right? It's not bragging if you can back it up. Back in the day, the 80s and 90s, there was a basketball player named Larry Bird. Just a fantastic shooter, outside shooter. And the story is told that he used to go into the NBA All-Star Game and he was come into a room with, like Michael Jordan would be there, Magic Johnson would be there, Isaiah Thomas would be there, Scottie Pippen would be there, and Larry Bird would come in and say, All right, boys, who's shooting for second? Right? I mean that's confidence. But then he would go out and back it up, he'd win. It's not braggadocio if you can back it up. And Paul is saying here, if anybody should have confidence in their flesh, if anybody should have confidence in their works, me, I should. And then he lists seven different things. Four of them are heritage, part of his heritage, and three of them are accomplishments. Four are heritage and three are accomplishments. You'll see that as we go through. But he lists seven things. The first four have to do with his heritage. They're things that he couldn't possibly have done. They are his privileges. They were part of God's providence in his life. He said he was circumcised on the eighth day. So this isn't certainly something he did on his own. Mr. and Mrs. Paul, right? Took him, Mr. and Mrs. Saul at the time, took him and had him circumcised on the eighth day, which is a precise fulfillment of the law in Leviticus 12.3. I'm an eighth dayer. Exact fulfillment of the law. He also says, second, that he's an Israelite. He's of the chosen people. The word that he even uses there is a unique word for the people, talking about the racial descent that he is from. The privileges that he has of being in the covenant community. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He's uh, an Israelite. And then he says, of those Israelites, there are 12 tribes. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. We're narrowing uh, the focus even more. Benjamin, the son of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, who died while actually giving birth to Benjamin the only son that was born in the promised land, the tribe from which Israel's first king came, most likely Saul, uh, gets his name even from Saul, the tribe that had remained faithful when others did not, the borders of the city of Jerusalem itself and her temple were inside of that area. Who am I? I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of, the tribe of I- I'm of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews, he says, the fourth thing. In other words, he's par excellence. He's got great stock. He's royalty in some sense, if you will. He's not of the kin- kingly line, but like that idea that we would think of of royal blood. He's not a mixed breed. He's a pure blood, unspoiled, unsoiled, unblemished Jew to the core. Most likely a native Aramaic and Hebrew speaker, even though he came from Greek-speaking Tarsus. These are his privileges, right? None of these things did he choose or do for himself. He didn't choose what tribe he was going to be born to or what parents or what day he was going to be circumcised on. But he's saying, look, I was circumcised on the eighth day from Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Those are all his heritage, uh, heritage and his privilege, which a lot of people could count on and think, man, look at me, look at where I'm from, look at all the things that I've got, none of which he earned or merited. They were just gifts of God, weren't they? But now he turns to three accomplishments. He says, as to the law, a Pharisee. We tend to think of that in a very derisive way nowadays, don't we? But at the time, to be a Pharisee, there was some respect about that in community. He was a separated one. He was part of a pure community. He knows the law. He's an observer of the law. He keeps the law. He's a doer of the law. And even then, the rabbis had added 613 laws to what God's law had said. And he would consider himself a keeper of those things. Not only is he keeping the Ten Commandments, not only is he keeping the laws that are laid out in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, but 613 other things that they had come up with to help prevent them from violating the laws that God even said. Just continue to make more and more offenses so you don't get close to the law. I've done these. When Christ said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God, there's an element in which it's talking about that kind of zealousness to the law. Of course, they did it without faith and they didn't do it with a heart, so Jesus condemned that, but there's an element of, as a Pharisee, when he says, as to the law of Pharisee, he cared about and wanted to follow the law of God. But he wanted to follow it as a way of salvation, not as the way, path from salvation being given to him by God. He says, as to zeal, He was a persecutor of the church. Zeal for God and his house were highly prized in the Old Testament. He really cared about the right worship of God. And Paul was not on the sidelines. He wasn't an armchair quarterback, but he was engaged in the spiritual battle. He thought that Christianity was a false religion. He thought it was blasphemous. And so he's taking pride in the fact that he was zealous in terms of persecuting the church because he thought he was protecting the true religion. He was actually persecuting the true religion and engaging in a false religion, but he didn't know that yet. And so he, you remember the story, Saul, was on his way to Damascus with papers in his pocket to kill Christians. He was zealous for the for the people of God and he thought this Christianity thing was a sect and a false religion and it was destroying the truth. He'll count that differently when he meets the risen Savior. And seventh, he says, as to righteousness, blameless. He's without repro- reproach. He's faultless. Without guilt and without defect. Job actually describes himself this way in the Old Testament as well. Think of the rich young ruler A man who is well satisfied with himself and his own obedience when Jesus said what he must do. And he said, all these I have done for my youth. I've I've done those things. This doesn't mean that Paul thinks he is sinless. Which is contrary to Jewish thought, right? They had a whole sacrificial system pointing out that they had sins. On a weekly, daily, and yearly schedule. They had things. But they talked about it this way in terms of there was an exemplary conformity to the way of life that was prescribed in the law in terms of outward obedience. Nobody could have come and brought a charge against Paul and say, you're really dropping the ball in this area of your life. As to righteousness, he was blameless in that sense. And that's what Paul is rehearsing here. He said this is the situation. If anyone could boast about confidence in the flesh, look at my heritage. Look at where I'm from and look at what I've done. That's a righteousness that's built on self, isn't it? And everything changes. The last thing we want to look at is Paul's accounting as a Christian. That's how he considered things as a Pharisee. We could really say that's how Saul considered things. And now, how does Paul consider things? Paul's accounting as a Christian. He said, although Paul could confidently boast in all these things, he came to realize that before God, they were not only useless, but they were damning if they were relied upon for salvation. Paul called himself in 1 Timothy the chief and foremost of all sinners. Saul would have never done that. You just heard how Saul thought of himself but after paul came into contact with the risen christ on the road to damascus everything changed with an saving encounter with christ he was aware of his sin he was aware of his need he was aware of the fact that all the things that he relied on count for nothing compared to the surpassing worth of knowing christ And loving him and being found in him to have a righteousness that doesn't come through his doing, but that comes to him through another's gift given to him. And so Paul says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ in verse 7. This is an accounting term here. The way that he reckons everything had changed. He used to have a profit and loss column. And in the profit column on his ledger was power and prestige and a birthright and privileges and his faithfulness and his works and his obedience. And all of that he had in his profit column. But after he meets Christ, he finds out, you know what, all of this is actually in my loss, my debit, my, uh, my, my debt column. Indeed, he says, I count everything as loss compa- compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, in verse 8. And don't let that phrase go by you. Christ Jesus, my Lord. What's packed into there? Christ. That means the Messiah, the promised one. All of the scriptures that Saul had studied had been promising and pointing forward to a Messiah. One who would come, who would redeem his people and save his people. One who would rescue his people and care for his people. One would shepherd his people. And he has come. He has been crucified. He has been raised from the dead and he is living and ruling and reigning. And Paul met him. Paul saw the glorified and resurrected christ the messiah the promised one there's nobody else to look for there's nobody else to wait for christ has come and he calls him jesus which means savior the promised messiah has come jesus the savior has come and he says my lord it's not just some nebulous god out there who's powerful but my lord my savior the one who cared for me, the one who rescued me, the one who saved me from my sin, the one who saved me from my self-righteousness. That one. He's thinking of his road to Emmaus, uh, D- Damascus, encounter here. It says, indeed, I count everything as lost to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. It's not just knowing data about Christ, but knowing Christ. It's personal, it's intimate, it's relational. He knows Christ, Jesus, his Lord. The one who died for him, the one who rose for him, the one who's ruling and reigning for him. And Paul says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish, as dung, as excrement, as filthy rags. Paul compares everything that he had to dung, to garbage, compared to being in Christ. This is not just a theoretical possibility of losing everything that Paul's talking about either, but he had a real loss, didn't he? He lost his power. He lost his influence. He lost his prestige in the community. He lost the skin off his back numerous times. He lost his liberty. He was uh, in a Roman prison He lost his safety, he lost his security, he lost his comfort, and he lost his ease. Paul didn't have his best life now when he met Christ. He was on the fast track to fame and fortune, prestige, and power. But when he met Christ, everything changed. And he lost all the things that the world holds dear. Power, prestige, influence, community, safety, security. He says, all of that's dung." compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ and to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but a righteousness that comes by faith, which is a gift. The treasure worth more than everything to Paul is Christ Jesus himself. Dennis Johnson, in commenting on this passage, wants to direct our attention away from the gifts, which are wonderful, to the gift giver himself. He says, for Paul, Christ is not merely a dispenser of saving benefits, forgiveness, acceptance with God, justification, life-transforming power, future resurrection, all of which are true, but Christ, the second person of the Holy Trinity, for whose fellowship we are designed and in whose friendship we find is our highest joy, it's in Christ, it's in him. He gives all of these things, but his joy is in Christ. And to be found in him, he says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God. And this is where the tale of two righteousness comes to its head, doesn't it? Found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law. If you're trying to be righteous on your own, or if you're trying to be righteous through works of the law, the scripture shows us that cursed is everyone who tries to do that. There's no hope and no help in self-salvation or in cooperation with Jesus for salvation or in self-righteousness, you're condemned. That righteousness ends in hell. But there's another righteousness, one that comes by faith, which is a gift in Christ. That one not only gives life, but leads to life eternal and everlasting and beautiful and glorious. And so Paul says that he rejoices to be found in him, in Christ, not having a righteousness that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God. In other words, it's a gift. It's a gift from God that he gives to us. Faith itself is even a gift that God gives to us and works in us. There's a contrast here. And the Reformation was really trying to recover this and draw this out as well between an achieved righteousness which is done by or in us and a received righteousness which is given to us blessed are you i forgive you i declare you righteous i justify you i adopt you i love you i give you my peace you are mine now and always those are gifts that god gives us in christ jesus The righteousness through faith, the righteousness that comes from God, the source of life itself, the source of salvation. He's contrasting the law way of righteousness with the faith way of righteousness. The self way of righteousness versus the spirit way of righteousness. The false gospel way of righteousness and God's way of righteousness. The reformers talked about it in terms of an alien righteousness, a righteousness that's outside of ourself. It's not our pedigree. It's not our heritage. It's not our accomplishments, but a gift. God imputes and credits Christ's righteousness to us as if we had done it ourselves. Jesus Christ, the one that he had seen, had paid the penalty for Paul's sins, had paid the penalty for Paul's self-righteousness, had paid the penalty for Paul's presumption and arrogance and pride. And guess what? He did that for all of those who are his. For us as well, Jesus Christ came and paid the penalty for all of our law breaking. In any way that we violated the law of God, which is good and holy and true, Jesus Christ paid the penalty for that in the flesh. And it's not that the law is bad. It's just that the law isn't the way of salvation. It's faith in Christ. And so Jesus Christ didn't only pay the penalty of our law-breaking, but Jesus Christ perfectly obeyed the law on our behalf. Beloved, that's a remarkable Savior. That's a remarkable King. That's a remarkable servant who paid the penalty for our law-breaking against his own holy laws and then perfectly obeyed them on our behalf and then credited them to our account as if we had done them. That's what Paul's saying. He's accounting them. Christ's righteousness is now accounted to Paul as if he had done it himself. That's a gift. Our sin is imputed to Christ, and Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. That's where our confidence comes from. That's why we boast in Christ. Christ. How many of you could possibly imagine having the filthy rags of your sin taken off by the Savior, and then his perfect robe of righteousness put on you, and then you thinking, no, I'm going to put some merit badges on that, of things that I've done. That would be embarrassing. <coughs> we boast in him. We boast in Christ. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone according to the word of God. alone, I want to conclude where Paul began. In chapter 3, verse 1, he said, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. That's a wonderful verse for us, for me to remember as a pastor and for you to remember as a Christian. I don't know exactly what you came to Christ URC to hear today, but I hope that on this Lord's Day and every Lord's Day, you will hear the gospel. I have nothing better to share with you. Rejoice in the Lord. He's the author and perfecter and finisher of your faith. He's the one who loves you. He's the one who died for you. He's the one who rose for you. He's the one who's ruling and reigning. He's the one who lives and dwells within you. He's the one who's coming back to get you. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Everything you need is in him. And so for me to come and say these things to you is no trouble for me. It's a delight for me to come and to preach the gospel. And it's safe for you. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evildoers. Watch out for anyone else will tell you anything other than Christ alone. Jesus Christ, plus or minus anything, is a false religion, beloved. But Jesus is ruling and reigning. Jesus Christ is risen, beloved. Jesus Christ is risen, beloved. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for not holding back and showing us what our sin and misery and rebellion and lawlessness deserved. But we thank you for not leaving us without alone and sending your own son, Jesus Christ, to endure the penalty, the condemnation, the wrath that should have been poured out upon us. And that's marvelous in our eyes that we have the forgiveness of sin, but you don't stop there. Not only do you forgive our sins, but you make us or declare us right. You declare us right by imputing your son's righteousness to our account as if we had done it ourselves. And this, indeed, is marvelous in our eyes. We're humbled by this. I pray that we would live and love and serve in light of the reality that we are not our own, but that we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, and that in body and soul and life and death that we are his. And there is nothing that we contribute to our salvation. We are recipients of it. And may we who have been shown so much mercy and grace go out and show mercy and grace to others and tell them about the good news of Jesus Christ. It's in his name, washed in his blood, clothed in his robe of perfect righteousness and indwelt by your Holy Spirit that we pray and all God's children said, amen. Our gracious heavenly father, We thank you for the blessing of this holy feast. Although we are unworthy to share this meal with you, it is by your invitation and dressed in Christ's righteousness that we have come boldly into the holy of holies. Instead of wrath, we have received your pardon. In the place of fear, we have been given hope. Our high priest and mediator of the new covenant has reconciled us to you. And even now, intercedes for us at your right hand. Please strengthen us by these gifts so that relying only on your promise to save sinners who call on Jesus' name, we may by your spirit honor you with our souls and bodies to the honor and glory of your holy name. Amen.